Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week... I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Welcome to Red Rum Blonde and part three of the murder of Sharon Tate. On this episode, I'll wrap up the story. I'll discuss the aftermath of the murders, the investigation, and the trials. And I'll briefly get into some of Manson's background and the LaBianca murders that occurred the day after the murders on Cielo Drive. I left off with Sharon's mother, Doris, and her sisters, Debbie and Patty, having just heard about the murder. Her father, PJ, went racing towards the house at Cielo Drive. Now, by now, the press had swarmed the residents, as well as police. A reporter grabbed Colonel Tate's shoulder at the scene and pressed a microphone directly into his face asking what his connections were to the murders. He replied with, If you don't let go of me, son, I'll give you a connection you won't soon forget. Then when a rookie cop tried to stop him from entering the residence, Colonel Tate just pushed his way through. He was met by Lieutenant Bob Helder, who tried to assure him not to enter, that they had everything under control. And once again, he wasn't having it. He noted how one cop was leaning on a car that wasn't even yet fingerprinted. Household sheets were thrown over the bodies, and he could see a guy opening the bedroom window to the house. And all of these mistakes he could see within a minute. 
The lieutenant insisted that he leave, but Colonel Tate continued to the house. And it was very painful to see detectives just rooting through his daughter's belongings. And then he could see Jay, whom he loved like a son, being carried out in a body bag. Worst of all, he could see Pig written on the door at that moment, not even knowing that it was in his daughter's blood. He finally returned to his own home to comfort his grieving family. Roman Polanski was in London. He'd been to a discotheque called The Revolution and then out with some friends. On the day of the murders, he worked with Michael Braun and producer Andy Bronsberg on the Day of the Dolphin script. And then later, he planned to have dinner with a friend, Victor Lowndes. But right before he left for dinner, the phone rang. It was Bill Tennant, his manager, and the one who identified the bodies at Cielo Drive. He was the one that gave Roman the awful news. And Roman couldn't believe it. He cried, he slammed his fist against the wall, and he paced the floor. Soon, a group of friends, including Lowndes and Warren Beatty, came to comfort him. And then, heavily sedated, Roman boarded a flight back to America. Sharon's funeral was held on August 13th. She was dressed in her favorite blue and white flowered dress. Her father couldn't help but notice a wound on her cheek and her flattened stomach. Her family had been so used to seeing her pregnant. Roman wore dark glasses, and he leaned heavily on his doctor at his side. He broke down several times. Many celebrities attended, including Peter Sellers, Warren Beatty, Yul Brenner, and Kirk Douglas. For many years, Roman held a grudge against Steve McQueen for not being in attendance. But McQueen was there. He was there packing a gun. He didn't stay long. He opted to quickly pay his respects before heading to Jay Sebring's funeral. And Patty remembered Peter Sellers being of some kind of comfort to her mother. Having just recently lost his mother, whatever he said to Doris brought her a sense of calm. Abigail Folger was buried near San Francisco, Steve Parent near Los Angeles. Wojtek Frykowski's body was in police custody until his mother and brother could come from Poland to America to claim it. And probably way too soon, Roman went back to the home on Cielo Drive. With him was Life magazine reporter Tommy Thompson and a photographer. There were so many false rumors surrounding the murders at the house that Roman wanted to quash some by granting this interview to Life magazine. He was still very heavily sedated, which caused him to speak with difficulty. He confessed that Sharon was the, quote, supreme moment of my life. And in a heartbreaking picture, he can be seen looking at the word pig written in Sharon's blood. It was all too soon. It's speculated that he was also there to retrieve some film that was essentially a sex tape of him and Sharon that the LAPD had left behind. Polanski wanted nothing more to do with this house. And in a very cold move, landlord Altabelli sent a bill for the bloodstains in the carpet. Can you believe that? Roman told his agent, Bill Tennant, to just give away Sharon's estate. He gave Tennant the white Rolls Royce that was meant to celebrate the arrival of his son. And the press was relentless in hounding both Roman and the Tate family. At the Tate home, they had to keep their blinds closed from the prying eyes, creating an even darker mood to the house. Patty overheard her mother saying that she wanted to die. And Doris spent 
hours secluded in her bedroom crying. One of the really interesting things that I learned after the death of Sharon was that both Roman and Colonel Tate began their own investigations to try to find her killers. Roman was sure that it was someone in his atmosphere. He, of course, suspected a jealous husband. He did a lot of screwing around, and he worried that it would come back to haunt him in the worst way. One of his girlfriends was Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. Her husband, John Phillips, was notoriously jealous and violent. And that was just one person it could have been. Intent on finding who killed his wife, Roman actually carried around luminol and Q-tips. He felt that there would have been evidence of blood in a car somewhere. So under cover of night, he would swab people's cars. But his forensic investigation wasn't very stealthy. One night, he was caught by police as he crept into John Phillips' garage. He just told the cops that he left a bag in a friend's car and they let him go. And he also bugged quite a few of his friends' homes and had their handwriting analyzed. Roman was also haunted by that pair of glasses left behind at the scene. Intent on finding the owner, Roman went to an optician and purchased a lens measuring gauge. He always carried the gauge with him to secretly measure the glasses of his Hollywood circle. One such friend was martial arts expert Bruce Lee. Jay Sebring was blown away after seeing Bruce Lee perform. And then Jay was very instrumental in helping Lee get an acting gig on The Green Hornet. But before then, Lee had trained Sharon and Jay in martial arts. Sharon invited Bruce Lee to meet Roman, knowing that the two had become fast friends. Lee was very supportive to Roman after the murders. Months afterward, Bruce was training Roman at his gym when he casually mentioned how he'd lost a pair of his glasses. Now, naturally, Bruce became prime suspect in the active imagination of his friend. Luckily, after Roman offered to replace his friend's glasses as a gift, when he really wanted to check the prescription, the glasses weren't a match for the ones left at the scene. I thought this was particularly interesting. And from reading about their friendship, I then discovered the inspiration behind Lee's jumpsuit in The Game of Death. He'd borrowed one of Roman's jumpsuits while skiing with him in Switzerland. And that was the suit that inspired the one he wore in the film, and then in turn, the one that Uma Thurman wore in Kill Bill. Nothing to do with the case, but just kind of interesting. So, not only was Roman doing his own investigation, but so was Colonel Tate. The former intelligence officer felt that he could find who killed his daughter. And because of his background, he was a lot more equipped than his son-in-law to do it. Colonel Tate went deep, often going in disguise and interviewing anyone who ever hung out with anyone at Cielo Drive. He was particularly suspicious of what trouble drug use might have brought to that house. Not only were drugs found at the scene, but PJ recalled seeing all the elements used to make LSD near dumpsters at Jay's houseboat. PJ staked out the marina, hoping to catch some kind of lead. When he saw men moving large amounts of alcohol, which is used to make LSD, he got their license plate number. And that turned out to belong to a member of the Black Panthers who knew Abigail through her social work. Seems very promising, right? So thinking he's onto something, his hope was then blown when that suspect was discovered to have an absolute airtight alibi. 
There was so much speculation going on in the press about the murders. It was everything from drugs to orgies to Satanism being blamed. And PJ followed up on everything. He left no stone left unturned. He employed the help of several of his buddies that had worked with him in the service. And these guys were all hell-bent on helping him find the killers. Everyone went to work interviewing anyone who knew Sharon and Jay, Abigail, Roman, or Wojtek. Friends of Sharon's told them that Jay was more than casually doing cocaine. Sharon and Abigail only dabbled in LSD and pot, and Wojtek did anything and everything. And they also found out that through friend Cass Elliott of the Mamas and the Papas, that a couple of pretty bad guys were introduced to the residents at Cielo Drive. This was Billy Doyle and Pick Dawson, known drug dealers from Canada. There was a really crazy tale about how Billy Doyle had taken or been secretly slipped mescaline, freaked out, and then pulled a gun on Wojtek and Jay. Then reportedly he was tied to a tree to calm down, and then there were rumors that Jay and Wojtek had raped him. Now, all of this was rampant speculation. Now, all of this was rampant speculation, but revenge would be a motive for Doyle. PJ heard the story from several people, including Candace Bergen. Now, remember, Bergen and Terry Melcher had lived in the house before Roman and Sharon. So Colonel Tate tracked down Billy Doyle, who cleared up the rumors. He had indeed been at a party with Wojtek. He said he said something about Asian communism being the worst. And that struck Frykowski the wrong way because he had had very bad personal experience with Nazis. So for a bit of revenge, Wojtek spiked his drink with some of Sharon's sedatives. And that, along with any other drugs in his system, did cause a freakout. To calm him down, he was tied to a tree at Mama Cass's house for about eight hours. But he insisted there was no rape. He convinced Colonel Tate that Wojtek was not a drug dealer and that drugs were not behind the murders, that Sharon and Gabby were good girls, he said. All of the members of the Mamas and the Papas were investigated by Tate and his friends. What they learned was they were all scared to death to the point of carrying weapons and pointing fingers at each other. Mama Cass suspected John Phillips. John suspected Pick Dawson and Billy Doyle and, in turn, Mama. And Michelle Phillips didn't know what to think, but she felt really bad about her affair with Roman. It seemed like they wouldn't get anything out of the musical group. One night during a stakeout at the house at Cielo Drive, Colonel Tate saw a group of Harley Davidsons pull up to the house. He saw several people dismount, go up to the house, and be totally undaunted by guard dogs barking at them. When the lights went on a neighbor's house, they finally left. Tate then tailed the bikers way out of the canyon, clear to a driveway with a wooden sign reading, Spawn Ranch. He observed the residents as the sun rose, and he was baffled as to what a bunch of hippies at an isolated ranch would possibly have to do with his daughter or her death. When he returned home, his buddies were waiting for him. So after telling him about the ranch, one of his friends, Jake, informed him that that ranch had been raided in August. That raid had uncovered drugs, weapons, stolen credit cards, and more. However, the warrant wasn't any good, and the group arrested was released. 
This included their ringleader, a guy named Charles Manson. Manson was on the suspect list in murders that took place a day after Sharon's, the LaBiancas. So before I go any further, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about those murders. One day after the murders at Cielo Drive, Charlie, Tex Watson, Leslie Van Houten, Linda Kasabian, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Steve Clem Grogan all loaded into the Ford and headed out for another night of murder. And this time, Charlie was convinced that they would get it right. He was still hoping that the crimes would be linked to Gary Hinman's slang, and then that would free Bobby Busillet. Linda drove while Charlie gave orders. They arrived at the home of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Unlike at Cielo Drive, their home didn't house any celebrities. Lino was the owner of a chain of grocery stores, and Rosemary had a boutique. They worked very hard to get where they were, and this was far from the glitz and glamour at Cielo Drive. The couple had just returned from a weekend trip. They were last seen at 2 a.m. when Lino had stopped to buy a paper from a friend at his newsstand. And ironically, that headline was about the murders at Cielo Drive. Little did the LaBiancas know that they would become the victims of the monsters that they had just read about. Charlie and the crew drove to Las Feliz, where they had partied some months before at a guy's house named Harold True. True had moved out long ago. They parked next door to True's former home. Now, even though this neighborhood was upper middle class, to Charlie, who'd grown up dirt poor, this seemed rich. So it would fit into the profile of the Panthers killing rich people to be linked to the Henman case. They intended to do extreme harm to the inhabitants of the home beside Trues. Charlie took Tex inside the home. Charlie had a gun and Tex a bayonet. They entered through an unlocked back door. On the couch asleep was Lino. The duo woke him up, bound his hands, and brought Rosemary out from the bedroom. As the couple sat together on the couch, Charlie demanded money. Tex was sent to fetch Lino's wallet and then Patricia and Leslie from the car. They took Rosemary back to the bedroom, and before Charlie left, he told Tex to make sure everyone does something. Charlie pushed Linda aside in the car. Susan and Clem were still in the back, and they all drove off. So inside the house, Tex put pillowcases over Lino and Rosemary's heads, and he bound them with lamp cords to gag them. He told Patricia to get some knives from the kitchen, and he had his bayonet, which he jammed into Lino's throat. The man's last words were, I'm dead, I'm dead. In the bedroom, Rosemary screamed, what are you doing to my husband? She struggled against the lamp cord binding her, pulling the lamp to the ground and breaking it. Pat stabbed at her, and then Tex came in with his bayonet. After that, he stabbed Lino some more before carving war onto his stomach. Patricia put the finishing touches on the poor man's body by sticking a fork in his stomach and a knife in his throat. Since Leslie hadn't helped much, Tex told her to do something to the body of Rosemary. Her dress was pulled up so that Leslie could stab her in the legs and behind. And before they left, the trio grabbed a pair of rare coins. Leslie took a towel and wrote, Death to pigs and rise and blood on the walls. 
An old genius that Patricia Krenwinkel was, she misspelled helter-skelter as helter-skelter on the refrigerator. Okay, so now let's go back to Colonel Tate and his friend's discovery. They talked of the raid and how Charlie Manson was on the suspect list for the LaBianca murders. Bobby Busillet was busted for the Gary Hinman murder when he was caught driving Gary's car with a bloody knife from the scene in the trunk. Police knew Gary was tight with the Manson family. Hinman had two cars that he forcibly signed over to Manson, and during the raid, the police found this other car. Before the family was released, one of the girls, Catherine Lutzinger, said she knew all about Hinman's murder. She told a detective who was involved what happened, but she happened to say that one of the girls stabbed Hinman in the legs. Now, if you remember, Hinman wasn't stabbed in the legs but Wojtek Frykowski was. Sergeant Gunther, the lead on the Hinman case, starts to wonder if all three cases are involved, the Gary Hinman case, the murders at Cielo Drive, and the LaBiancas. And Jake's gut told him that they were all tied. Plus, he figured that the bikers that Colonel Tate saw at Cielo Drive were the straight Satans. And he knew of one that hung out at, guess where, Spawn Ranch. So Colonel Tate took all this information to Lieutenant Helder, and he tried to convince him that these three cases were connected and that Manson and the family needed to be checked out. Helder wasn't convinced. PJ just frankly said to him that he'd give him a week to investigate before he went in on his own because he was damn determined to solve his daughter's murder. But before Colonel Tate could act on any suspicions, this case blew wide open. Officers looked in on the family, and this time in Inyo County in Death Valley. This is where the family had moved after the raid at Spawn Ranch. Manson had foolishly set fire to a $35,000 earth mover that belonged to Inyo County. When deputies checked it out, they found lots of tire tracks. So soon, deputies and rangers were in hot pursuit of the family members, only to lose them. However, Officer James Purcell and Ranger Dick Powell found a small area housing what looked like a bunch of teen girls and two. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Two men. A little guy in the group took off and the rest stayed. Purcell and Pout knew that they were outnumbered and they left the crew alone. So by the time they returned with backup, the family had cleared out. 
And finally, around October 8th, officers found another setup made by the family and got their arrests. They got info of where the others were and made another raid, and this time they got Manson. Catherine Lutzinger, of course, spilled her guts about Hinman's murder, and then so did Susan Atkins. When Susan, or Sexy Sadie as she was called, was moved to the Sybil Brown Institute for Women, she bragged about the murders at Cielo Drive to a fellow inmate. And she knew all the details of the murders. And she actually bragged about her role in Sharon's death. She said that when Sharon begged for her baby's life, that she looked her directly in the eye and said, Look, bitch, I don't care about you. I don't care if you're going to have a baby. You'd better be ready because you're going to die, and I don't feel anything about it. And Susan said that when she stabbed Sharon, it felt like a sexual release. She liked how the blood was warm and sticky, and even went so far as to taste it. After telling the details of the murders, she also confessed that the gang killed the LaBiancas. So what happened next was months of antics in the courtroom. The main attraction, of course, was Charles Manson. The cult leader and his family became fodder for the press, and all eyes were on the family and their leader. Honestly, until I read Jeff Flynn's book about Manson years ago when it came out, I didn't know hardly anything about Manson's childhood. And what I learned from that book really gave me some insight into him. So I'm going to give you a quick recap of his life. Charlie came from a line of strong women. His grandmother, Nancy, was from a very religious Kentucky backwoods. She married a railroad conductor who provided a very good life for his wife and their three children in Ashland. But Charles Maddox soon died of pneumonia, and the family fell on hard times. And it was very hard raising three children, especially daughter Kathleen when she hit her teens because she went wild. Kathleen, like her mother, was strong-willed, and she loved to have fun. And when she began sneaking out, this, of course, led to trouble in the form of a pregnancy. The father, Colonel Scott, Colonel was his name, not his rank, ducked out on being a father, probably because he was also already married. And in those days, being an unwed teen mother brought a lot of shame on the family, so Kathleen quickly married a guy named William Manson. Very little was known about him except for the fact that he, too, deserted her. On November 12, 1934, Kathleen gave birth to Charles Manson. But she was still young and really wild, and many times she would just leave the baby for long periods to go party. And then, in 1939, Kathleen and her brother, Luther, assaulted and robbed a guy named Frank Martin of $27. So Kathleen was taken to my hometown of Moundsville, West Virginia, to serve her time at the Moundsville Penitentiary. Ashland was too far away from the prison, so Nancy urged her sister, Glenna, to keep Charlie. The child was only five and should be near his mother, she said. Glenna lived in nearby McMeckin, so she and her husband took him in. He missed his mother dearly, causing him to cry at school. And his Uncle Bill handled that by dressing him in his daughter's dress and forcing Charlie back to school. So needless to say, Charlie got bullied. In the years that he lived with the Thomas family, he developed three interests. Knives, guns, and the love of music. After getting out of prison, Kathleen then took Charlie back and took care of him. But, you know, she hadn't changed her wild ways. She still loved to party. 
And Charlie became an uncontrollable child. He lied, he stole, and he often skipped school. And he was very mouthy for such a little guy, and this often got him in trouble. After Kathleen cleaned up and quit drinking, she just wasn't equipped to deal with her son. She sent him to the Gibraltar School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana. Charlie claimed here he was beaten by priests with paddles as big as bats, and it didn't curb his behavior. He ran away and got into burglary, which got him sent to Boys Town in Nebraska. And that experience was awful. Charlie said he was raped many times while there. To protect himself, he developed this thing he called the insane game, where he would screech and flap his arms and act insane to ward off attackers. After Boys Town was the National Training School, which was actually promising. Charlie just had to keep on the straight and narrow there, and he would be paroled. But he blew that when he was caught raping another boy by knife point. So he wasn't released until age 19. For a while, he lived a somewhat normal life, which is surprising. He even got married to a girl named Rosalie on January 13, 1955, at Marshall County Courthouse. And not long after, they had a son also named Charles. Regular life didn't last. He got into stealing cars, and he violated his parole, getting sentenced to prison at Terminal Island in Los Angeles Harbor. While there, he read and reread Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People when he wasn't busy learning how to pimp. When he got out, he carried out this dream of becoming a pimp, which got him back into hot water. He was sentenced to prison again. And while there, he read the Bible, Dale Carnegie, Scientology books, and Stranger in a Strange Land. And this is also when he discovered the Beatles. When he was paroled at age 32, he'd spent nearly half his life in institutions. Now he wanted to get out and break into the music business. He walked right out of prison with his guitar and straight into a new world. Lots of impressionable young people, drugs, and sex. Rosalie divorced him when he was locked up, so he was now a free man. Charlie was allowed to relocate to Berkeley, California, as long as he regularly checked in at a San Francisco parole office. He conned a young woman named Mary Bruner into letting him stay at her place. Being a lonely assistant librarian who was new in town made her the perfect bait for the con man. He regularly hung out at the hate, taking in the scene. There was pretty much someone on every corner preaching about something, and he just took it all in. And then he began preaching himself, and people listened. They would gather around and gaze up at him with admiration. Every day, he'd attract a new group of followers, and sex and drugs were just freely given to him. So it wasn't long before he intentionally began to cultivate these followers and try to get some more. Pretty soon, he had his family. And that family stood by him during the trial. The ones who weren't arrested caused huge scenes outside the courtroom. When he shaved his head because, quote, I'm the devil and the devil always has a bald head, the girls did too. Led by their fill-in leader, Lynette Squeaky Fromm, the girls would block the sidewalk and harass anyone that was around. When Manson cut an X into his forehead, they parroted that move. His hold was strong. 
So if you listen to the podcast, you know I hate court details, so I won't go much into the trial. Basically, it was a circus. They used Linda Kasabian as the star witness against Manson. Vincent Bugliosi used the helter-skelter theory to prosecute Manson and his minions. But as I said earlier, after reading Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, I have many doubts about this. So, Bugliosi made out that Manson told the family to go to the house on Cielo Drive to put fear into record producer Terry Melcher for not producing his music. That's the theory. But problem is, O'Neill uncovered notes written by Bugliosi about how Melcher had gone to visit Manson on three separate occasions after the murders on Cielo Drive. Now, if this guy was so terrified of Manson, why would he go visit him on three separate occasions? The fact is that Terry Melcher had a lot of money and pool in Los Angeles. And this would have blown Bugliosi's theory and probably lost the case for him. So, obviously, this knowledge was buried. And it's precisely why I didn't want to use Bugliosi's book in my research. Plus, he was just not a good guy. He threatened people and he stalked an ex-girlfriend. But what he did worked. Manson and the other participants were put in prison. But why did they really commit these murders? The narrative that Bugliosi suggested of wanting to scare Terry Melcher doesn't fit. But there is another theory behind it that has some facts. It's LSD. Tom O'Neill discovered some really odd connections while doing his research on Manson. And it dives deep into conspiracy, but trust me, there's some facts behind it. So it revolves around the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic and two guys with the last name of Smith who are no relation. This clinic treated everything from overdoses to sexually transmitted diseases. Manson and his family were regular fixtures there. It was founded by Dr. David Smith, a drug researcher. He spent two years studying the effects of amphetamines on mice, and he found it made them very aggressive, so much so that they would devour each other while on the drug. Now, Dr. Dave also studied LSD. And who else studied LSD in speed? None other than Roger Smith, who was Manson's parole officer. Now, this gets weird. Roger ran the Amphetamine Research Project, which ran its research on people, specifically the hippies at Haight-Ashbury. So while being Manson's parole officer, Roger Smith was doing these experiments on the effects of drugs on people. Roger Smith started out with other parolees on his watch, but soon it was just Charlie. And he gave Charlie a lot of leeway. And as much as Charlie violated his parole, he was never in trouble, which is very odd. So then you throw into the mix Dr. Louis Jolion West, or Jolly West, who also had an office at the clinic to study LSD's effects on hippies. Journalist Seymour Hirsch exposed West as one of the researchers in the MK Ultra program. Okay, this is getting deep. MKUltra was this secret CIA project to create a Manchurian candidate, you know, a person programmed to kill through drugs and hypnotism. So I think you see where all this is going. And who is in the middle of all this? Charles Manson. So the theory is that Manson and the family were possibly unwitting subjects in this experiment. 
I mean, think about it, and it makes some scary sense. As much as this is conspiracy, and Tom O'Neill didn't want to delve into that territory, through Freedom of Information Act documents and interviews, it started to look a lot more like fact. Manson, however, wouldn't tell O'Neill anything. He just said to him that he wasn't a rat. So it's pretty interesting stuff. And, you know, it would explain why a bunch of kids went from hippies at Haight-Ashbury to brutal killers. So I highly urge you to read Tom O'Neill's book. It is riveting. Regardless of why Manson and the family killed, thankfully, they were in prison. But just for a time, because parole was something that loomed in the future. So I want to steer this back to the Tate family, specifically Doris Tate. For years, she couldn't even talk about Sharon's death. And she suffered from debilitating depression. But when she heard that Leslie Van Houten had gotten over 900 signatures to get parole, Doris came out fighting. She realized that she could do something for Sharon and the others, and that was to keep the family behind bars. Doris got over 350,000 signatures to keep Van Houten in prison, and her parole was denied. And from there, she continued the fight by being very vocal about keeping the family where they were. The death sentences of Manson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Watson had all been overturned, which then meant that they would be eligible for parole. So Doris worked very hard. She founded COVER, which is the Coalition on Victims' Equal Rights. She also helped pass Proposition 8, which allowed victim impact statements during the sentencing of violent attackers. She was also behind Proposition 89, which allowed the governor of the state to overturn decisions made by the parole board. And Doris was at every parole hearing of the family. And as terrifying as it was to face people like Tex Watson in person, she stood her ground. Sadly, Doris's health was impacted by a brain tumor, and she passed away in 1992. Then her daughters, Deborah and Patty, stepped up to take over at parole hearings. But as you know, Patty, too, passed away. Deborah Tate actively campaigns against the Manson family to this day. Remember in the first episode when I said I was going to ask you to do something? Well, this is it. Leslie Van Houten's parole hearing will be sometime in 2020, and you can do several things to help. You can email or write the parole board. You include her name and her number, which is CDC number W-13378, and why she should stay in prison. So I'll provide a link. Email bph.correspondenceunit at cdcr.ca.gov or write to the Board of Parole Hearings at P.O. Box 4036, Sacramento, California, 95812-4036. Or go to Deborah Tate's change.org petition site. I posted a link to my Facebook page because we have to keep up this fight for Doris, for Patty, and most important for Sharon and the others because Van Houten, although not involved in Sharon's murder, did help in the LaBianca murders. And others in the family will be up for parole at various times. So I'm going to tell you what happened to the rest. Manson, of course, died in 2017. Bobby Busillet is still in prison, 
and thankfully denied parole by Governor Gavin Newsom. Susan Atkins was consistently denied parole and died from brain cancer in 2009. Linda Kasabian, having been star witness in the trial, is of course free. Mary Bruner, also free, is thought to be in the Midwest. Steve Clem Grogan was paroled. Patricia Krenwinkel's next parole hearing will be in 2022. And Squeaky Fromm was paroled and is free. Tex Watson, still in prison. So whenever these killers come up for parole, we need to fight it. We need to do it for Sharon and for those whose lives are lost. So let's pick up Doris's fight. I really hoped that I helped you see how important this is. They need to pay for their crimes. So that wraps up part three of Sharon's hate. You really need to read all the books I mentioned, especially Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos. And go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's new movie. Thank you, Quentin, for what you've done. It brought a smile to my face and it brought a tear to my eye. And I'm sure to many others, that's good on you, man. So thanks so much for listening and catch you guys next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.